You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. As many of you know, most of us here at the Master Photography Podcast are huge fans of Squarespace, and that's because they make it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling prints or products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. So head on over to squarespace.com improve for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code improve to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Welcome into the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You're joined by thousands of photographers listening to this show who are all on the same journey to master their photography. I am Jeff Harmon, the host for this episode, and I am joined by Lord Page himself. It's become a thing, Nick. People (laughs) are joining our Facebook group and they're saying they're mentioning Lord Page as the host (laughs) to get in. So, Uh, well, it's it's fun to be here. Hopefully no new nicknames come about because of this episode. (laughs) But yeah, uh, Lord Page, Lord Page is happy to be here. (laughs) Very good. I'm so glad. Glad I could have you join me at this roundtable. We got some good stuff that I think you can contribute to. So it's going to be it's going to be a fun show. We're going to talk about Phil Light versus Flash. We're going to talk about the October. 28 updates to Adobe Photoshop and Lightroom. And if we have time, I hope we will. I hope we can get through it. But uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit about shooting basketball since that's coming right up here for uh, people in the United States, at least where basketball season is about to start. So it's going to be fun. Uh, cool. All right. So let's let's jump right into the very first thing. Is it better to use a reflector for fill light or flash? So we had a really good question come through the Master Photography Facebook group. And if you haven't joined that group, you really need to so that you can do stuff like ask questions like this and and be able to uh, either uh, we may talk about it on the podcast. If it's a question we really like, or at least you're going to get some help from uh, the other people in the Facebook group who are very, very nice. And uh, we're trying to make sure we, we have a culture of help in there. And uh, so no things like, well, that's a stupid question or because if people do that, we, we boot them. They get out. So you do have to to uh, name a podcast host though when the when you go to ask the group uh, to join the group so that we can make sure to keep the spot the spammers and the bots out of there so lord page works great <laughs> <laughs> it's been a good That's answer great. i like it that proves you're a listener we really just wanted to be listeners that are in there all right so michael cotton asked this question he said for on location outdoor senior or general portrait sessions do you prefer a reflector for fill light on the subject or an off-camera softbox with a flash and why? Thanks and love the podcast. So thanks, Michael, for mm-hmm. posting that question there. We're, we're really glad. So Nick, you are known as Lord Page because <laughs> of your landscape photography. That's, I think, primarily how, how most of the world knows you. But you've done a ton of portrait photography, too. And so I want I have an opinion that I'll, I'll share. But I want to give you first, first chance at answering Michael's question. So the, the, short, uh, the short answer is that I prefer flash. Uh, but it's, it's more, it's, it's a deeper question than that because, uh, there's a lot of benefits to using a reflector as well. Some of those benefits are the learning curve is way faster (laughs) because what you see is literally what you're going to get. You can see with your own eyes, exactly the type of light you're producing, but there's a lot of situations where a reflector doesn't work that great. 
Um, a lot of times people are using it to bounce the sun back into a person's face when they have their back to the sun and it kind of equals out the exposure. But in that situation, the problem is you're creating a giant bright light source that the, that's making the person squint and, you know, you start smelling burning hair and it's, it's very, yeah. it's a very bright thing for somebody to have to stare at. Uh, okay, you don't so, get that with flash. Right, right. Right. And that's exactly where I was going to go with this. Why I yeah. also would say I prefer the flash in the softbox. Uh, I definitely went through a time uh, like the learning curve problem there. It was, there was many photos. So I started out, I'm just an outdoor, an ambient light photographer. I started, <laughs> I started out that way, like it's natural light. That's what it's there for. And and that's why what we do with photography. And I even had like, you know, convincing myself arguments of why it is I didn't need to learn flash because um, ambient or natural light is is uh, easier for me to deal with. I don't have all this gear. I have to drag around to portrait shoots. I, don't, I was rationalizing uh, and it worked for a while. And it didn't mean I got terrible photos. They were nice. They were they were still good. I still had clients that loved them. But flash was is way better. So I, I graduated from the I'm a natural light photographer to the reflector photographer pretty quick. And uh, and it, it helped for sure. It helped. But like you said, there's this massive drawback of in order to get it to actually fill, you have to reflect a huge amount of light off of it. And now it's like in their face, in their eyes. And mm -hmm. their natural reaction is, oh, my gosh, I got to put my hand up over my eyes because that is too bright. <laughs> right. That doesn't yeah, make for you, a good photo. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's something that you don't run into when you're using flash because no. the flash is it's it's only on when you when you take the shot and they don't have time to squint and and to blink and to cover their eyes in pain. Um, you can get that same kind of look with a lot less pain for whoever you're photographing. But there are certainly advantages to a reflector, um, you know, there are some times where all you really need is just a little bit of light in their eyes, whether right. it's a catch light or just, you know, to kind of fill in some of the shadows that are being created from the brow. And sometimes if you're in a shady situation and you don't have that direct light source, you can use a reflector to just give a little bit more light in the eyes. Right. And so that that'll be the one time that I, well, that I would be tempted to use it, but I very seldom do is in those shady situations where you're kind of in a, uh, you know, uh, an alley somewhere or there's not uh, that harsh direct light source and you're just getting a little bit of light in the eyes that when it's way more subtle it works way better but the the biggest benefit to flash is just how versatile it is it is because you can do that same thing with flash just turn it way down just pop a little bit of light in the eyes or you can just go you know straight joel grimes style and just overpower overpower the ambient light and get a completely different look sure flash is way more versatile i think yeah, and and it's it it's still the same issue. Uh, it's just that it's you know fractions of a second that the <laughs> the flashlight yeah. is going to be there versus the constant light you're going to get from the reflector. That's just where the mm -hmm. challenge lies. Um, and the the reflector tends to be well, I guess it depends on where it is. But I the way I did it, it tended to be more harsh lighting anyway. You don't have a lot of control over the power of the light. Um, so it's, it's, it's a tough thing that way to use. It's just for outdoor, uh, reflectors are a little more challenging to use. If it's, if it's in a studio, now they can be an asset. They can really add to your flash. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you can use them to bounce your flash off of it and add a little bit of fill light in front 
when your flash is lighting from a different direction. And that's that's a nice look. That's a, you know the common referred to a lot of the clamshell kind of shooting uses that. And so there there's they can still be an asset, but boy, for outdoor, uh, there is no substitute in my opinion for using flash. You, it's just so much better, especially inside of a softbox, like you said. It produces just beautiful results, and and I love it. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's so worth learning, and mm-hmm. if so, if that's the reason that you were Michael, if you were thinking, well, reflector, I kind of get a flash. I don't have it. First off, I don't have the equipment, and the, there's a learning curve. It's worth it. Just get into it. <laughs> it's worth it. Yeah. And I, I've found that it's actually way easier to get an umbrella or a softbox in the in the location that I want it to be. Sure. You know, the, the particular position. A lot of times, a reflector is way more difficult and time consuming to set up on a stand unless you have help. And you know, the the only way it really works is if you have somebody holding it. And a lot of us just don't have that second person to stand there and hold it and be like, yeah, angle it a little down, angle it down. Oh, wait, no, now you're right blinding there. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I can smell the burning hair. It must be perfect. <laughs> yeah, all right. All right. So hopefully that answers your question, Michael. Uh, I, I think you want to learn Flash. That's where we're going with that. All right. Yeah. Next topic. Let's move on from that one. October 2018 Adobe Lightroom updates. So as we record here in mid-October 2018, Adobe just barely released, uh, kind of associated with their Adobe Max conference. So they they have a conference every year about this time, and they usually have updates. Uh, We'd be very disappointed if they didn't have updates to their software, and they do. So they, they released Lightroom Classic CC 8, I'm glad they went to the numbers instead of the year. That was a smart decision. I think that was good for them. Uh, also, uh, Lightroom CC, and this is still a problem. Those names are too similar. People are still going to confuse mm-hmm. them. It's not good, but it's uh, Lightroom CC. So this is more like the the mobile-focused kind of thing, or maybe a, a cloud-focused. Let's say it that way, the cloud-focused version where your photos are all going to be synchronized across all your devices through the cloud. That's kind of the biggest emphasis of this. Plus, it's been written from the ground up in modern stuff and is, is faster and, and uh, going to provide a little better user experience. It's going to be the direction for the future at some point. I just think Classic's going to go away. But it's, a, it's not immediate. It's a long ways out. Anyway, version 2.0.1 for Windows because they found a little problem with Windows. They had to do a little dot one update. Then you got Mac 2.0. And then on both iOS and Android, it's 4.0. So all that's a little confusing, too, because you have different version numbers based on the platform you're running it on. But anyway, Mm -hmm. Lightroom CC has been updated and we have Photoshop CC 20, version 20. So I want to walk through the Lightroom features first. But before I do, I want to give kind of my standard disclaimer here. If you rely upon Adobe software for your business, I really highly recommend you don't install these updates for at least two weeks after they're released. And that goes, it's for all of it. Whenever it gets released, don't jump on it immediately because you are putting your business at risk of having a problem. The same goes for, for like Mac OS or Windows 10 updates. Just give it some time and let the people who are going to go do it Go out there and take the arrows. (laughs) If there's going to be a bad problem, let them find it. Let them tell us about it. Let them suffer through it and let your business keep going along. That's that's the whole point. Now, sometimes it's going to be fine. Sometimes you're going to have releases that are going to be just fine. There's not really glaring issues. They may even have a couple of them in a row through. But 
at some point, you're probably going to end up having a, a hit and a speed bump there. If you can't afford that, if you just can't handle having your, your software be impacted and really be unusable for like a mm-hmm. week's time, don't do this. Just It's going to be so tempting, but just hang back and don't do it. Okay. So I have to make sure I give that caveat. In fact, I'm, I'm going to actually put, be putting out a new resource for, for everyone. Um, over the years, as we've done this podcast, a lot of people kind of come to rely on on my saying it's good or not, it's ready or not. And that's because I go watch the Adobe forums. I'm really engaged in trying to see if there's problems, warning people about problems if there are bad ones. And so I'm going to have a resource over at phototacopodcast.com that's going to have the current status of all the updates. Mac, Windows, uh, the Adobe software. At some point, I hope I'll be able to have the time to add some of the other software too. But for now, I'm probably going to focus on just those, uh, the Adobe software plus Mac and Windows. All right. So there's a resource that you can look for. It's not there yet, but I'm working on it. It's going to be there soon. Nick, let's run down the laundry list of the features here. Feel free to jump in as I go through it. But uh, the first thing to talk about with Lightroom is if you're expecting that because they jumped from version 7.5, which was released in August of 2018, uh, and they jumped from 7.5 to 8, if you're expecting, oh my, that must mean there's a lot of stuff in here, you're going to be disappointed because, <laughs> because there's not that much stuff. Um, Adobe mm-hmm. themselves has kind of said, look, the numbering is really just for us to do internal support. They kind of want to, at max go to that dot zero number and then maybe um, all the updates between Adobe Max and the next Max, they'll do the dot releases, but it's just a point in time kind of understand what version people are running for support reasons. But their overall goal is to, this is a subscription model and they want to provide value for that subscription. So they're going to release stuff as soon as it's available and they feel like it's ready. Doesn't mean it is. So again, don't, don't do this update if, if you can't afford to have any problems with it. But uh, that's their plan. That's what they want to do is release functionality as soon as it's ready. And they're not going to re- wait for like a .o major update release number um, artificially like they probably ha- they had done in the past. All right. So the first feature. Go ahead. You had something to say there, Nick? Oh, no. I was just going to say that's, that's really the benefit of a subscription model is that you don't have to wait you know, years in between those little updates, you just, they kind of trickle feed them to us as, as they develop them for better or for worse, because sometimes, you know, (laughs) they trickle, (laughs) they trickle feed you things that you don't really want. Um, but it's kind of nice to not have to wait so long in between updates. Yeah. And they, they even had a a post out there that had kind of the, the stuff from 7.0, I think through 7.5, the numerous releases, just to remind everyone, like, well, the reason there wasn't that much to deliver in 8.0 was we had all these updates in between, which is good. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we want them to do. We want them to deliver value on that subscription model. A lot of people still despise it, and I get it. I, I wasn't super excited about a subscription model either, though the $10 a month photography model is a pretty sweet deal. So, yeah. all right. Can easily roll back is your first, uh, I'll call it feature of this update. What this is... Uh, they frequently, when they they upgrade or add new features to Lightroom, they have to go and change kind of what how the catalog works itself, the stuff that the catalog has. There's a database behind it, and they've got to add fields to that database. And that, uh, that also frequently means that if you apply the upgrade, you can't go back without 
because it'll it'll convert your catalog to the new mm-hmm. format, the new version of your catalog. And that that ends up biting a lot of people too. They think, well, I'll just install the new version. If stuff is really bad, I'll just uninstall it and put the old version back in place, only to find out that they converted their catalog and they're stuck. Now they can only run it with the new version. Um, and you can go do backups. So if you ha- if you are doing that, if you're actually running the backups, which I highly recommend, then you could go and pull your catalog at, at your last backup and load it. But that depends on how recently you did that. Uh, the good thing is 8.0, they didn't have to change the catalog. So if you have to roll back to 7.5, you can. So that's a, a very nice thing. And that does take some of the risk out of the warning I gave of don't update until you can uh, you know, let other people find the issues. I still think it's wise if you super rely on Lightroom for your business to just wait for a couple of weeks. But there is at least this, like you could upgrade if things are totally a problem, then you can go back and be right back where you were. So that's a nice thing. Um, okay. Supported operating systems. Another kind of feature about this. Uh, Mojave, Mac OS Mojave is the very latest uh, OS from Apple is now officially supported. It worked fine. I was running Lightroom 7.5 just fine on Mojave, but um, now it's officially supported. So that's good. The thing, though, to really note is the stuff that is no longer supported. Uh, Mac OS El Capitan is no longer supported, and neither is Windows 8.1. Both of those are dropped from support. Doesn't mean the software won't work on it. It means if you run into problems and you call Adobe, they're going to tell you, I'm sorry, you're on a version of Mac mm-hmm. or Windows. We don't support. You need to upgrade your your uh, computer. So just be aware of that. All right, now actual features. The first one is, um, this one might be a big deal to some of the listeners. I think it would have been a big deal to Connor, but they waited yeah. too long to deliver it. So he switched. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and it's improved Canon tethering. So... Um, if you haven't done a lot of tethering, so th- this is you are connecting your computer to your camera as you're shooting and kind of using your computer to to press the shutter button, essentially, and take the shot. And then it would like deliver the image straight to Lightroom so you can immediately use it, edit it, validate things on it. It's really kind of a neat way to shoot in a studio, especially, which is what Connor does a lot of and why he used this mm-hmm. a lot. Um, but if you've used it, you'd probably know it was really slow. It disconnected from the camera a lot. He just was in and why it drove Connor away because he liked shooting that way. And it was a it was so problematic that he just couldn't use it anymore. And I think he switched to on one if I remember right. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, Lightroom uh, Adobe says they have improved this for Canon cameras um, and they the, the it's faster. It's more reliable on the connection. Uh, also added a feature where you can now say that you want the photo to be saved to the memory card and to your computer, not just to your computer, which is how it worked before. If you lost your connection in the middle of it, tr- sending the photo to your computer, you lost the photo. It was gone. So yeah. now, and that just, that's just makes sense. Yeah. yeah. You know, you want to have that backup copy because you never know what'll happen if an image doesn't transfer over properly or something. Um, or maybe maybe you're shooting out in a mobile environment. I know a lot of real estate people like the really high end real estate photographers. Oh, yeah, yeah, they'll, sure. they'll shoot tethered quite a bit, and that that uh, the the computer that they're connected to might not be their main post processing computer. They're just using it for you know the larger screen and and being able to verify that they're getting what they want. Right. Having that that version on an SD card will make their workflow a lot better. I. I'm surprised that that wasn't already a feature. It should be. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. Yep. So that that's good. 
so it's a, it's a feature I don't use. So I don't have anything more to say about that one than that. But I thought the listeners, yeah. there would be some listeners that might be excited about that. Okay. The next one is depth range mask. So this is kind of specific to iPhones. I believe some functionality because uh, with the latest Google Android stuff that there's some functionality there. But at least with iPhones now, uh, any iPhone with dual cameras. So that's the 7 Plus, the 8 Plus, the 10 and above with all models of 10. They, um, when you take your photos in HEIC format, so it's not JPEG, you have to specifically choose HEIC. They have within the HEIC photo depth data now. So the two cameras taking the picture, they can get some data about the depth levels in the photos. It really makes it so that you can end up getting a mask of the person in a photo versus the background. It can mm-hmm. really separate them out. And now in Lightroom, when you bring in one of those HEIC formatted photos, you have that mask to make adjustments with. So now you can adjust the background. Maybe you can add more blur if there wasn't quite enough there. You could lighten it, darken it, different from the foreground. Uh, kind of a cool thing. What do you have? What do you think, Nick? I think when I first read depth range mask, I got really excited. I was like, oh, really? I, Cause I was envisioning like, you know, adding graduated effects in a landscape oh, photo that would where, be cool. you know, you're adding a little bit of, you know, haze in the background or whatever. And so when I first read that, I was like, oh, that's awesome. And then I read, oh, it's for iPhones. And then I got to thinking, why would I ever care that much about an iPhone photo? I mean, the, the, the idea and the technology is really cool. I just wish I could use it on a real camera or, right. you know, a DSLR or mirrorless camera. But it's if you think about it a little bit and you're somebody that actually takes iPhoneography very seriously, uh, I think that that could be a really cool thing. You know, it would definitely improve those type of photos to be able to, like you said, be able to darken that background, add a little bit more blur, um, do stuff like that. I think that's a really cool technology. I think it's kind of um, maybe not gimmicky, but probably not going to be the most useful update in this. Yeah, in this. because it's yeah. your phone has to be the source of the photo. So right. that, that makes it less less of a, a good thing. I mean, they're, they're improving those cameras mm-hmm. constantly, of course. And you can get really fun shots, but it's, boy, it's a lot harder to trigger flash from it. And it's, it's just not the same as with a, a real camera. The, the thing I think is cool about it is this might lead to mirrorless manufacturers, at least. I don't know about Canon and Nikon. That might be way out in the future, but they may go after this. They may be able to say, okay, we, we really need to get depth data as you take the, sh- the photo. Look how it's worked with the iPhone. Look how, how powerful the editing's become with it. We, we need to figure out how to add this. I, I could see that happening, and that would be cool. Yeah. Would, it's good to just have different ways of driving the industry forward, and this is a way that, that it can happen. And now people who do use their iPhones a lot, you have another option of how you can edit your photo. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's given all those people that actually bought Elytro a little bit of sure. hope. <laughs> sure. Like maybe maybe there is a future for multi-lens cameras other sure. than just phones. That would sure. be cool. All right. The next one, I, I think this is the one that you and I are both the most excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Single Step HDR Pano Merge. And what this means... I know I have done a ton of this. I haven't done as much lately, but I, I really loved doing this in the past. And, I, and Nick, you said you've done this too. We're, we're, we're taking panoramas, but we're also bracketing. So just, mm-hmm. just in case people don't know what that means, panorama first off is you're going to, usually we're sweeping from the one side or the other, like left to right is how I usually do it. 
and I'll, I have a, a, a scene I want to take a picture, a, a, a nice photo of landscape that I want to take a photo of. And I want to maximize the uh, megapixels that I'm going to have for that scene. I want to, I want to make a really, a picture I could blow up huge if I wanted to and capture a lot of detail in the scene. And so I'm going to start on the left extreme edge of it. And people have done with their, their phones too. So you kind of understand panel mode on your phone, but then you, you take shots um, overlapping them a little bit on your camera so that you can merge them together afterwards and make one shot out of many multiple shots. Bracketing on top of that means that with every shot you're taking, as you go from left to right, you're also going to take multiple shots at different exposures so mm. that you can exposure blend them in addition to gluing them together. And now you end up with a super high dynamic range and lots of detail. And it produces like really fun results. It's so fun to do it. I think I love it the most because of the technical challenge. <laughs> but yeah. but the, the image quality is phenomenal too. And you can really, you can go print that up just huge if if you wanted to and that's kind of cool to think that you have that all right so the the thing that's cool about this in lightroom now was bef- uh, several releases ago you couldn't even do it in lightroom you had to go into photoshop or another another tool that would mer- help you merge this stuff together they added a few releases back the ability to hdr merge exposure blend the bracketed shots as one function and a separate function to do the panorama merge and glue all those photos together so it was one photo. And now they have it so that you can do it in a single step. You can select bracketed panorama photos, a whole bunch of photos in this case, and in one button, push the button and have it exposure blend them together and create the the panel merge in one thing. So Nick, yeah. you said you had some time with this. What do you think? Oh, huge time saver. Like, let's talk about the workflow before this came out. You used to have to go through and find each bracketed set of shots for each camera position. So, you know, let's say you took 11 different uh, horizontally or vertically shot images to stitch that panorama. That means that you would have to go through for each set of those photos, grab those three merge those to HDR, the gro- then grab the next three, merge those to HDR, and do that 11 times, right. which, you know, sucks. <laughs> Let's yeah. be honest, that, that took forever. And then you'd take those DNGs and then merge those to a panorama, and the resulting file would be a DNG with the with a stitch to a panorama with the full dynamic range of each one of those bracketed shots. Now you can just grab all those shots, right-click, and then select uh, photo merge HDR panorama. And it, it's a huge time saver. And it doesn't even take, it takes about the same length of time as it does to stitch a pano, maybe a tiny bit longer. Uh-huh. And it's, it seems like I, I can't see a problem with it, which is really rare for, <laughs> for these Lightroom. <laughs> like usually when Lightroom updates, there's always like, Oh, but they didn't do this. That's unfortunate. But Really, I have zero complaints and it's a huge time saver. And it's something that I do pretty often because anytime oh, there's just so many uh, use cases for uh, having to bracket. And if, you, if you're shooting a panorama and you have to bracket for dynamic range, the way that I prefer to do that is I will stitch that HDR panorama and then I'll dual process that where I create a virtual copy, one for my sky, one for my foreground, and then exposure blend in Photoshop. Now that's, it's literally just saved me, I don't know, probably 10 minutes per, 
10 minutes right at the beginning of stitching this all together. It seems to work really well. It's pretty exciting. It's a big time saver. That's good. I, I've also seen uh, Greg Benz. Uh, he's a, a good friend of mine. He uh, he does a ton of landscaping. He produces the Lumenzia plugin for Photoshop that you should check out if you do exposure blending. But he uh, he's put this to the test too, and he gives it the big thumbs up as well. So if there's anyone <laughs> who should know <laughs> about how yeah. to do exposure blending, it's Greg Benz. And he's he's also said, Adobe nailed it. They they really did a good job with this. So I'm super excited. I haven't tried it out myself yet. I'm super uh, excited to upgrade and have the time to go take. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to one of my panels from a while back and uh, and try it out and see how it goes. And I'm excited to try it out. Yeah, right. I've done it with several images and it seems to work really well. And That's so good. Big props to Greg because he must have known that it was coming out because he I'm, had that video out so quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing he's on the beta stuff. Yeah, he yeah. must be. He must be. All right. Next one, they do have a new process version. So it's version five. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry too much about it because Lightroom's just going to automatically start using it. But what it means behind the scenes or, or part of what the new process version means, uh, they say it should improve image quality in high ISO files, specifically around colors, getting better color rendition rendering out of high ISO files in the raw processing. So that's mm-hmm. exciting to me. Uh, another one uh, that's part of the new process has to do with with noise again. And it was when you do negative dehaze. Um, so astro shots, I think this is going to be a big deal in some astro shots. Um, in some extreme cases, the photo started to look really yellow. It had a yellow cast that it was adding. It wasn't in every shot, but it had a yellow cast. And they they say they fixed that in the raw processing engine. So I'm excited to test those out. Have you had any experience with that yet, Nick? Yeah, I've, as soon as I saw this update, I started scrolling through some of my old photos, uh-huh. like looking at some astrophotography ones to see if I could see a difference. Eh, the high ISO, less noise thing, I couldn't really <laughs> okay. eyeball any kind of difference. But I do, I do actually use the negative dehaze uh, quite a bit in a lot of my photos as kind of an effect to give a little sense of depth where you're at literally adding a little bit of haze in your background. And I know exactly what they're talking about about it kind of adding this yellowish um, yellow cast. And it it does seem a little bit more neutral when you add some negative dehaze, which is nice. Um, But it's, it's not really a tremendous difference. Um, But I'm, I'm sure that if I had both versions of Lightroom open at the same time and I was looking at the same file, I'd be able to actually see the difference. But because I don't, I couldn't really tell much of a <laughs> huge difference. All right. I smell a photo taco episode on this one. Yeah. So I'm, yep. <laughs> we need, we need somebody with a whole lot of time on their hands to investigate. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that may not be me, but, <laughs> but I'm going to give it a go. <clears throat> so yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to take some of my basketball shots, which I hope we're going to talk about in a second here. I'm going to take some of those and uh, see if the color is better. Cause that is something I have seen on those shots. The <laughs> colors are, are drab and I reach for like the, uh, the saturation. Sometimes I, I try to do it, but I usually back off again. Like now nah, I'm just going to leave it. If they do a better job with the raw processing and improve that, um, hopefully I'll be able to see it there in the basketball shot. So we'll, we'll see. I'm going to be checking that out. And so stay tuned to photo taco when I have a chance to get through the testing and I will tell you all about what I find. All right. So that's uh, the, the only other thing was they, they have some bug fixes. They have a kind of a list. I'll put a link in the show notes. There wasn't much to, uh, worth mentioning. There weren't like really big bugs that they squashed that, uh, that I thought we should outline. So 
Maybe some of you have them. You can go check the list. I'll put a link so you can go find that out. They also added new support for cameras and lenses. They do that with every release. The The only thing to mention there is Nikon Z, Canon R, and Fuji X-T3 are all supported, which was super fast. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know that I remember a camera release and then a uh, Lightroom release adding those cameras this quickly. That was pretty fast. So hopefully well, it's anytime well. you're waiting for a camera for five years, yeah. <laughs> I, I suspect that they knew that there would be a, a demand for right. it, a pretty quick demand. Yep. Um, so, which means that we're going to be able to see a whole lot of um, raw, raw examples of how those cameras are performing and stuff. So that'll be cool. Yeah. I'm just excited. It went that fast. Hopefully they can keep that up. Because uh, it has been way years ago, it was a long time before you mm-hmm. got support for your camera. And uh, I, I think I even had I bought my 7D Mark II before there was support for it, and I had waited quite a while even before buying that that camera. And part of the reason I'd waited was that Lightroom didn't support it yet, and I still mm-hmm. waited for several months. So that's really cool. All it right. totally depends on the popularity of it the does. camera too. Yeah. If this was a, you know, a, a new, I don't know, a new Pentax, it might have taken a little longer. Might have. They did have <laughs> some others I didn't bring up, so there uh, there was okay. more than this. And and the lenses, you you can go check the list if if you've been waiting. It might be there. It seems like they cool. are doing a better job of of keeping up with that. So that's a good thing. Cool. All right, we're going to talk about Photoshop updates next, and then hopefully we have time for shooting basketball. But first, we need to thank. Our sponsor. Turn your dream into a reality with Squarespace, just like most of us here at Master Photography. We love Squarespace, and that's because they make it easier than ever to launch your passion project. So whether you're looking to start a new photo business, showcase your portfolio, publish blog posts, sell products or prints, or whatever it is you want to do, Squarespace is the tool for you. They have beautiful templates that were created by world-class designers, and you have the ability to customize those templates with just a few clicks, so you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. Squarespace also has a powerful e-commerce tool that lets you sell anything online, and they have analytics that will help you grow your site in real time. And the best part, in my opinion, is that everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box, so you don't have to spend time building a second mobile website for SEO purposes. Buying domains through Squarespace is simple, and you'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. So head on over to squarespace.com slash improve for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code improve to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash improve offer code improve. All right, Nick, October 2018, Adobe Photoshop CC 20. Mm -hmm. You know, so easy to say these product names. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it keeps getting stranger and stranger all the time. But (laughs) at least they don't have the year in the name of the product anymore. That's that's probably a good thing. Okay, this there's there's some updates. I only outlined a couple of them that I cared about. I'll put links in the show notes to the updates so you can go check out the others that are there. But these are the few that I cared about. And uh, the first one is one that you, you've had some experience with. It's content-aware mm-hmm. workspace. So the content-aware feel feature has been in Photoshop for a long time now. And it has been something I have used a ton on photos. I get rid of the stuff I didn't realize was there in the scene when I was taking the picture that are distracting using it. I've, uh, I've decided I didn't like branches of trees, whatever. I, there's been lots of reasons why I've needed this in Photoshop so that I can I can go and content aware replace stuff in the screen. 
the the problem was it's like this magic thing <laughs> and you have no control over how the magic happens so mm-hmm. you, it, when you when you do the content aware fill but prior to this release you would do it and if it just didn't look good your choice was try it again or uh, revert back and try it again yeah. and see if it did it or accept what you got and then maybe take a sub selection of what you had and try it again and see how, how Photoshop fixed it that time. And sometimes I've had, I needed to do it like 10 times in a row before I was finally happy with what the end result was. And you're just hoping that the content aware gods figure it out (laughs) exactly, (laughs) and you, you get it to work. So this new workspace is supposed to take some of that guesswork out of it. So what do you think, Nick? How's, how does it go? So I had a play with it earlier today and I was really pleasantly surprised with how much better it works. It, it does, like you say, it adds a whole new um, kind of pop-up workspace where you have this in, in complete dialogue, kind of like the, the refine edge or, you know, whatever that's called. Now I can't keep up with the terminology anymore. I'm getting old. Um, but it, it gives you this whole new workspace where you start to have control over where it's looking at where it's looking in the photo to sample from and where where it's going to be generating uh, new pixels. And uh, it's it's incredibly powerful and it makes the content aware fill just works so much better because you have so much more control over, okay, Photoshop, stop looking in this area. You want to be looking in this area to generate these new pixels. And it's amazing how much better it works when you actually have the control over saying, yes, you can, you know, uh, mirror the, the, textures in the photo that might help or yes you can rescale the the pixels that we're sampling from uh, there's a whole bunch of different options that you have control over now and all of them um, make it just way more powerful but it is one more thing to learn in photoshop and i know that there's a lot of people that are sighing you know <laughs> a deep a deep breath of regret over one more thing that they have to learn but once you learn it, it is really, really powerful and it and it just works so much better because the original the the original three step process was you would create a selection, you'd select control, <laughs> you'd select uh, content aware fill, and then you'd cross your fingers. Right. And right. that that was really <laughs> the only thing that you could do. And now you have like if it doesn't do it right the first time, you go into the dialogue and you you tweak some things to where it does a perfect job. And it, it works way on a way higher percentage of situations than it used to. So, and, and again, this is an advantage that Adobe's got over a lot of other software makers because they have so much with the creative cloud and the Adobe Sensei technology. So we talked a little bit, we're going to skip over the updates for Lightroom CC itself, the, the newer version of Lightroom, uh, because there, we just don't have time to go through it all. And I think a lot more listeners are interested in this than, than Lightroom CC. Although that's growing, I am seeing a lot more people in the Facebook group mention it. So it is growing. It is getting better. But one of the things that is part of Lightroom CC is they called it Adobe Sensei, the technology that's there. And there's a lot of machine learning stuff that's going on. And as people are processing their photos and and using the all new Lightroom CC, it's learning a lot. And now they're saying that they've been able to take kind of the learning that's happened through that and and other ways that it's been they've been using it. And it is part of this new content aware 
workspace so that it is going to get a better, a more intelligent content aware fill without you doing anything. And then you have all these other options to change it as well, which is awesome that you can, you can do something if, if the, the machine learning totally fails you, which I, again, I said, I've had that happen a lot <laughs> in the previous versions. Um, now you, you, it should do a better job initially and you can go and, and change it and have it uh, tell it like, no, really, I don't want you to consider this part of the scene in the content aware fail. I want you to focus here, stuff like that. It's really cool. So, yeah. And in the dialogue, it, it even gives you options as to what your output is. So you can either have it be applied to that same layer or you can have it be applied to a brand new pixel layer or you can have it be applied to a new blank pixel layer. That way, those changes are just on its own layer. It's a it's a less destructive way of working as well. It's really, really powerful. It's awesome. I'm so excited to try it. Yeah. All these t- new toys and I haven't had time to try mm-hmm. them yet, <laughs> but I'm yeah. going to. Uh, I have the perfect use case because I just went to Delicate Arch down in Utah. Uh-huh. And if anybody that's ever been to Delicate Arch knows that it's a very popular place around yeah. sunrise, sunset. And we, the light was just coming up and everybody was, you know, we had a nice, uh, a nice wall of photographers and we're all waiting for sunrise and the light starts to get good. And that's when all this family reunion decides to go (laughs) right under the arch and take photos under the arch, not even looking towards the beautiful sunrise colors, but just looking off in the opposite direction. And so every single one of my best color shots from delicate arch, I have 40 people to remove. That's going to be a great use case for this better content aware fill. Excellent. (laughs) All right. So I'm really looking forward to it. I hope it's going to be awesome. It seems like, it seems like a lot of the feedback I've seen early on was, yep, they nailed it here too, which is, it's so encouraging because we've had a lot of releases over the last several years where they, it felt half baked. It felt like it was not Mm -hmm. done. It was not ready. And it seems like this release is better that way. We have a higher quality release here. Again, don't upgrade to it yet. If this is super important to your business, don't do it. Wait. But, um, I'm really encouraged by this. It seems like it's it's really good going in the right direction. Let's say that. Okay, mm-hmm. two more features I want to talk about, and then we'll we'll get to some tips for basketball shooting. Multiple undo. So this is really simple. Um, for some odd, well, it, it's just worked this way forever in Photoshop. You couldn't just hit Control Z or Command Z over and over and over to undo. Go go through your undo history. That would only back once and then if you hit it again it would reapply <laughs> apply the change. And I've hated that. I'm always like, oh, that's right. Photoshop's different than the whole rest of every bit of software there is. And you have to, on Windows, it was Control-Alt-Z. By default, was the keyboard shortcut to do multiple undos. I think it was uh, Command-Option-Z on Mac, something like that. Anyway, they've now changed it. It's now going to be like everybody else. And Command-Z or Control-Z, you're going to be able to just hit that and go multiple steps back. So, yay, I like that. That's, That's a very nice thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, live blend modes. I'm excited about this one too because I use blend modes a lot as I'm doing different layers. I do some game day photos uh, for the high school basketball teams where I produce, uh, I take one of the images as we do the team photos. I take like action shots of the players with my lights and flashes so that I can get really clean, nice images of them dribbling the ball, shooting the ball, whatever it might, whatever move, action shot they want. And then I turn that into, for each one of the seniors at least, uh, and then some of the others, I turn it into a, a, looks like a magazine cover kind of thing. 
um, game day photo. It says game day on it, and then it has who they're going to be playing, and, and the school uses it to advertise the game. So it's really fun to do. And in order to make it work well, I really use layers, and I use a lot of different blending modes in those layers for different purposes as I'm mm-hmm. building those things out. And the challenge had been that I can't remember which blend mode is which as I'm going to go use it. I know there's one I'm after. I know what the effect is, but uh, I just don't use it consistently enough that I can remember which one exactly it is. There's some of them I've gotten down now, but sometimes I even just want to try them. Like, well, that's not exactly the effect I'm looking for. So I'm going to go through them and switch and through them, especially on Mac. This is not super easy to switch through them. Well, now there's, and the way you had to do it before was you had to actually switch the layer blend mode. So you couldn't preview it. You couldn't kind of see what is this going to do if I choose it. You had to choose it, then see what it is, then go back and hit the drop down again and choose the next one. Yeah. And and it took a lot of time. So they've changed it now that you're going to be able to preview just by scrolling over the the thing and see what the blend mode is going to look like. And that's awesome. I'm really yeah. forward to that. I think for those that do creative edits in, in Photoshop, this is going to kind of get you out of a rut as well, because, you know, I know that I typically do very similar things to most of my photos, but right. knowing, knowing what each blend mode might do in, in a shorter amount of time to where it's not super time consuming to just sit there and, you know, toggle through every single one. It's not only going to make learning those blend modes quicker, but it's also going to be uh, kind of nice for breaking out of of a rut when you tend to do the same blend modes over and over and over because you know what to expect from them. You can quickly you know, just see what other blend modes might do as well. So it's going to be good for both learning and breaking out of ruts, I think. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk for the next 10 minutes or so which is not enough time to cover the topic, but, <laughs> but let's, let's just get started on it. Some tips for shooting basketball because um, it, it's starting up real quick. So I want to start off with, I have a few questions I don't want to ask you, Nick, because I know what I'm doing, but I haven't actually paid attention to or seen other photographers you, doing like a high school basketball game shoot where mm-hmm. you have a lot of freedom and flexibility as long as soon as you get a media pass, you can be wherever the heck you want. You you can position yeah. yourself where you want to be, stand up, sit down, whatever. Uh, in NBA, you probably aren't. <laughs> you're not going to have that flexibility. You're probably going to be given this little bitty square that you have to stay in, and that's it. You're done. Um, but I wanted to talk about: Have you had the experience of and uh, in high school basketball games? What position on the court are you going to be in? Are you standing up? When do you mm-hmm. change the positions? Tell me about how you do it. Well, I usually try to I try to keep moving because for, you know, you don't want to get all your best photos from the exact same spot because then it just looks like you're just like camped out in one spot and it's really obvious. Um, so for that reason, I try to keep moving. But my I, you typically get my favorite shots um, pretty much right under the hoop. Uh, tip, and and I've, I've shot some college basketball as well. And you typically want to stay outside the key that way when they're doing free throws and stuff, like they're not just staring at you <laughs> and is, and the likelihood of getting ran over after a layup or something goes down a little bit <laughs> or the ball to the lens. Exactly. Yeah. Ball to the lens. Um, so typically the rules are, especially they start getting to be more sticklers about this in tournament play, but, uh, just outside the key. So you're outside 
inside the key on either side. I like to get down as low as I can, which makes the players look bigger and, you know, more impressive. Plus it kind of cleans up the background because if you're shooting, you know, at eye height, you're getting, you know, the court in the background, you're getting fans or the far side of the gym in the background. But if you get down really low, you're getting the, the roof and the ceiling as a background. A lot of times that's a much, um, you know, simpler, more pleasing background to have for your shots. But typically I like to be down on the baseline, down really nice and low and, and try to get, you know, the shots as they're soaring up above me and try not to get pummeled. <laughs> That's pretty much it. But I don't want to get all my best shots right from that same spot either because that just feels lazy. So once I know that I got some really nice layup shots or, or something from down um, under, uh, under by the baseline, I like to move out to the perimeter and try to get some of the more, you know, dribbling towards the, the towards the camera type shots or, you know, shooting a three, that kind of stuff that you can only kind of get from the corners mm. because you have a less obstructive, uh, a less obstructed view. Okay. So I, I do the same thing. I, I've tried lots of places where I'm going to do it. I do have an advantage. I, I, my wife comes with me when we do high school basketball. So I have a second shooter who's got a different perspective and between the two of us, then we hope we can get a good shot of whatever's mm-hmm. going on, the accents going on. And I, I'm on the baseline usually and um, probably about almost halfway between kind of the, the key and the out of bounds and um, right in there. Part of the reason I, I, I decided to go there was how the refs move around. Yeah. And so because the refs are either going to be right there at that same location and I can just take a step to the right or, you know, take a step one direction and be out of their way or they're in the, like right under the hoop or whatever. And, and I don't want the refs to be like suddenly standing in my way of my shot. Mm-hmm. I, you got to be away from them a little bit. So yeah, I, I probably actually a little bit further from the key more towards the out of bounds than I am to the key for that reason that the refs kind of step in the way and, and get there and they, they can switch to either side of it to kind of depending on where the play has been and where the ball goes out of bounds and stuff. So that makes it hard. Like if they are right there, the ball went out of bounds by where you're at. You don't have time usually, or, or it's going to look, you're going to miss your shot. If you're going to try to run around to the other side of the, of the, of the basketball hoop to get to the other part. So I, I don't know. That's where I kind of tend to camp out. And I had been standing up, um, which has the problems that you talked about. Like you have the distracting backgrounds. It's, it's a chance they don't look as big and that's that's a hard thing but my problem was i needed to be more mobile and move around yeah. so it's tough to get down low and and then get back up i'm usually have a, a really heavy lens <laughs> that I'm, I'm trying to hold up and um it's been easier just to stand but i gotta get i know i need to to get down a little bit it's good advice to to make it be mm-hmm. get some better shots um okay how about yeah, it- Well, and what I want to add to that is one of the things that I've slowly had to learn and be comfortable with is the fact that you're going to miss some shots, but that's okay because you would rather get a few really awesome shots with a unique angle than to cover every single play 100% but have a crappy angle. Right. And so I would rather and it sucks because I know exactly what you're talking about, where there's always that uncomfortable moment where the, the ref is just standing right in front of you and their butts right in your face. And you're just <laughs> trying not trying to, you know, you kind of look away and you look all awkward because 
you know, they, and it almost seems like they're doing it on purpose sometimes. Like if you don't want to be on the ref's bad side or else he'll just stand in front of you the whole game. Yes. But some, sometimes if you're on their good side, they'll purposely like stand one foot to the left, right, or one right. foot to the right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I've even gone and said like before it'll start, say, can I take a picture of you guys together? And uh, just to get on their good side, exactly. that way they're just not just to be like, I'm here. I'm I'm cognizant of the game. I understand what's going on. I'm not going to be in your way. I'm trying to give them that assurance. And yeah, I don't know if it's worked or not, but they, they I haven't had any problems with the ref. So that's that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. OK. How about focal length? What focal length lens are you using? So this is one of the very few times that I'll use a prime lens for sports. And the reason for it is because gyms are dark and you need a little extra light anyways. And it seems like a lot of a lot of my favorite shots are typically in that either 50 millimeters or like 85 millimeters at the most. Because, you know, as they're driving towards the hoop, that's typically when you're getting your best shots and anything more telephoto than that. And you're just getting a face shot <laughs> at the hoop. <laughs> so you might as well shoot a little bit wider, shoot 50 millimeters and have that benefit of like an F 1.4 maximum aperture where you can lower your ISO, get a slightly cleaner shot with a fast shutter speed. Um, so typically I'm using a fast prime, but I do like to bring a wide angle lens as well because some, uh, some other cool shots that you can get is to kind of be, a little closer to directly, you know, in the key and to get that really low, but wide angle, like right. 16 millimeter shot while they're doing a layup. Um, it's a really cool perspective. You don't need tons of those kind of shots, but it's nice to get at least one per game. So I'll try to bring a wide angle as well. Okay. Yeah, that's good. I, so I'm, I'm using, um, I could use the 50. I haven't tried that yet. Maybe I should one game and just to see how I feel. It about totally it. depends on which 50 though. Like, yeah. it, you know, a nifty 50 is not going to focus well enough. Right. So, um, for a long time I had the Canon F 1.4, I guess it was 1.4, like the, the kind of medium, uh, medium priced, 50 uh-huh. millimeter and it worked really well. And then after that I had, you know, the, the Canon 85 1.8 and that, that let in quite a bit of light. And that, and the other nice thing about a fast prime is that you're getting more separation from that background than you would with like, you know, a 70 to 200 or 24 to 70 F 2.8, uh, 50 millimeters at F 1.4, you're getting quite a bit of separation from that player in the background. And that helps a lot with compositions and stuff as well. So it's not, you know, it's nice to have that separation between the player and all the stuff going on around them. Okay, so I, I use it because it's the best lens I have. The best quality lens I have is my Tamron 24 to 70. Yeah. And uh, I'm also shooting crop. So that does mean I have to apply the crop factor. It gets you like 40 to 100, somewhere around there. And um, and it's it's good. So the, the thing, the benefit to that is I can be on that baseline. I position myself so that the team I want to shoot for, like the high school I'm profiling. I mean, I want to get some shots from both sides anyway, I guess. But I really want to to highlight the team I'm shooting for. So, so I, I get it so that they are coming towards me and they're going to shoot at the basket I'm under. And then they play defense on the other side. That way their faces are always towards me. And that's, it's a nice way, nice way to do it. I, I want to get some of the other side too occasionally. And so sometimes I'll, I'll have my wife be on the opposite side, but we usually prefer the ones that have the face anyway. So, so that's a good position to be in. And then that focal length allows me to go, 
as wide as it goes and, and get the shots on the court when they're on offense on the side I'm on and then zoom completely in and get to the, like the, the hundred millimeter length <clears throat> with the crop factor and get some shots of them playing defense, which mm-hmm. is a lot of the time the, the parents are so excited because there's a lot of players who are much better defensively than they are f- offensively. And those are the shots they value. Like nobody ever takes a picture of a guy playing defense. <laughs> they they yeah. only take pictures of the people playing offense. And so I've had typically it's like the same three players that yeah. are, are shooting the ball every right. time. Right. Yep. So they're, they're like, I love it that you have my kid just playing uh, monster defense in the post. And they, they get so excited about those shots. They don't care at all that they're, they're, they're noisy. That does not matter. This is the best shot they've ever had of their kid playing defense and they love it. So it's awesome. I, I think that's, it's a good situation for us. Um, all right. We only have a couple minutes left. So what do you think, Nick? We had three other things I was going to ask you, which, which one should we tackle? I think uh, most people are going to want to know about settings. Okay. Let's and do settings. I suspect because I'm using primes and you're using an F2.8, our settings are going to be vastly different. <laughs> uh, what, what kind of settings are you typically using when you're using? Okay. That so you, it, it may be something that a lot of people don't, they think the gyms are lit. Well, <laughs> No, they're not. (laughs) They go in there to see a basketball game and everyone's like, I don't understand why you can't get a good shot. The the thing seems like it's lit just fine, but it is so poorly lit. It it doesn't matter what basketball gym you're going into. They are very poorly lit. There's not enough light for you to to really get good exposures when you have to capture this action. You got athletes that are moving really, really fast here. And so your shutter speed has to be high. And it's, it's the battle that I face every time. It's like, Oh, can I, can I just take it one more notch down on the shutter speed so that I can Mm -hmm. lower the ISO and you're, you're battling for light like crazy. So I totally get why the prime 1.8, 1.4 lens is going to be so (laughs) beneficial to let that light in. Um, yeah, so, because typically that's that's going to be the difference between ISO 8000, ISO 4000, or even a bigger one than that. You know, you're at least letting in one stop of light, which yeah. doesn't sound like a lot until you add that We're one stop it. with ISO. And then suddenly, oh, there's a big difference in right. one stop of light. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, so I, I I've tried it a lot of different settings now so that I can try to figure out where's the sweet spot and is specific to my gear. Like the crop sensor I've got, the 70 Mark II, the, the lens I have. And so I usually start out at about one five hundredth of a second is all in the shutter. I have to go that slow. Mm. I'd love to go faster, but I just, I have to go that slow to have a chance. Um, and then it's F2.8. That's the, the fastest the lens will go. So it's certainly F2.8. And then my ISO, I have done a lot of testing on this now. And the best image quality I can get, and I, I now have some data behind, I understand why it's because the dynamic range gets so impacted as I raise the ISO. I only go up to an ISO of 2,500 at a max. And wow. it means my shots end up being probably at least two stops underexposed. But the end, the final result when I go raise that in, in Lightroom afterwards is way better than if I go past that point in ISO. So I am definitely restricted by my camera as far as how the ISO performance works. But I'm still getting images that are very acceptable, <laughs> like very, really good for the parents of these athletes, for the school. Uh, it's, it's still working really, really well. 
And, and I, I just have so much fun doing it. So that, that's kind of yeah. where I start. It's about one five hundredth of a second. ISO 2500 and uh, F2.8. So what about you? Uh, I try really hard to get to that one one thousandth of yeah, a second. Yeah, I wish I could get there. Because that's kind of that's kind of like what you're always striving for yep. in a fast moving sport. But it, my and this is I don't know if this sounds bad or not. <laughs> it sounds almost sexist. But uh, I shoot different settings for girls basketball than I do for guys basketball. And anybody that's shot them knows that you know. Uh, boys basketball is just a little bit faster paced and every, you know, people are right. running a little faster and a, a little bit crazier. And so for that reason, I try to shoot boys basketball at one one thousandth of a second girls basketball, typically at one six fortieth of a second, just because you can typically get away with it because it's more about, you know, passing and shooting rather than the really fast drives and, and fast pace, you know, breakaway drives and stuff. Um, so typically, I'm at that plus my maximum aperture, which is usually between one, 1.4 and 1.8. And then, uh, unlike you, I'm trying not to underexpose. So I'm trying to get my ISO typically around, I guess ISO 5,000 is pretty typical, but you know, for low light sports, it's, it's really where full frame cameras dominate compared to crop sensors because you know, the difference between ISO 5,000, ISO 2,500, it's pretty much a wash actually between between your camera and mine as far sure. as you know the performance so those two isos perform about the same the difference really is that i'm getting that faster shutter speed right right yep yeah. so it, the thing is though you do have a chance that's i've got lots of photos i'm really really happy with even with my limitations with the crop sensor 2.8 mm-hmm. i it's it's still possible so don't give up and don't think you can't do it if you don't have uh, a lot of really expensive gear, the lens is not is is relatively inexpensive. That Tamron twenty four to seventy, the crop yeah. sensors are less expensive, and the Canon fifty millimeter f one point four. Sure, that's what I used for a long time, and that's like what a three hundred dollar lens. So, um, not a, not an expensive lens, but it lets in a lot of light, and it almost focuses fast enough. Almost, <laughs> not quite, but almost. Um, <laughs> you you miss some shots, but you get a lot of shots as well. And a lot of times, when you're dealing with those fast aperture primes, they're not designed for sports. But it, as long as you're kind of ahead of the action and you're, um, you know, focusing where you need to be, a lot of times you'll get nice sharp shots. All right. Go do it. It's, it's so fun. And, and it, you might wonder, well, how do I do it? How do I get with the school? I, I'm probably, it's very, very likely the girls team has nobody shooting. <laughs> That's how I got in was yeah. the girls had nobody doing it. Uh, like it's just the support is not as big for the girls teams. It's unfortunate because it's really fun to watch them play too. Yeah. In fact, my very favorite photo I have ever taken was of a, a female athlete who had got hurt early on in the season and she made it back enough that she could dress for the final game of her senior year. She wasn't going to be able to play because she still wasn't recovered enough to, to run full speed, but they put her in the game for the last couple of minutes. Um, she got fouled and she was taking free throws and was just bawling at the free throw line because she mm-hmm. was so excited. There was so much emotion behind her playing those those few minutes and the team just ran out and hugged her after she made the shot and oh it was an incredible feeling and i got a photo 
Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that's my favorite part of shooting high school sports is you you end up getting emotionally attached to all the kids oh, you yeah, photograph. Yeah. Yeah. Because especially as you do it several years, you see them slowly develop into, you know, the starter on the basketball team. And then, you know, when senior night comes and it's their last game, like They're everybody's falling. emotional and you yeah. and you can't and you can't help but get wrapped up in that. Right. And that's something that you don't really get at the college level because people are cycled through so fast that uh, you just the emotional impact isn't the same as in high school. It's really cool. Yeah. So it's just so much fun. So if you if you've never done it and you want to challenge yourself, it, it will help you learn. It'll help you learn about photography, help you learn your focus modes. You're going to have to figure that out to catch that action. <laughs> so go, go ask, go, just go ask the school administration. I'd like to shoot a women's basketball game. Uh, can I get a media pass to go do that? And I'll bet that you can make that or, or find the team mom. <laughs> they always have a team mom for the high school sports. So go find the team mom for the women's team and say, I want to shoot the girls and she'll make it happen. It'll, it'll work. <laughs> All right. And it doesn't, and it doesn't matter what genre of photography you do the most. It'll always make you better shooting yeah, different yeah. genres. Uh, the shooting sports has made me a better landscape photographer just because you start thinking about the, the timing and a sense of moment and it makes you a better photographer. It helps you learn more about light in general. You just, Mm -hmm. because we're all fooled, you go into that gym. Like we said, there's so many that are like, I don't get it. This feels like it's very well lit, but you you learn about light a lot when you're, when you're challenged because of the lack of it uh, to, to figure out how to shoot. And boy, it's really helped my, it's improved my photography a lot. All right, let's go to doodads. My doodad is going to be some flashes that we've talked a lot about on the podcast. This is not new to longtime listeners, but in case you're newer, the Young Newell YN564, which is about $70 per flash, and the YN560 TX2 controller, which is $40. Bucks. Um, so you, you want a few of those Young Newell flashes if you want to get into this, but it is a very inexpensive way to get into it. And it's uh, it, sure they, they don't have all the, the fancy features. They may not be the best built uh, flashes, but it is a way to get into it. And that's what I want to encourage you to do. We talked about the flash, uh, the fill versus the flash using the reflector versus the flash. And if you aren't doing flash because it's so expensive, this is what you need to do. You need to go get these and get into it. Just get going. They're not going to be flashes that last you for a long time. They're not going to be stuff that's going to hang around for 10 years, but they're going to get you into it. And that's that's kind of mm-hmm. what I want you to do is go get started on learning how to incorporate flash into your photography. Uh, another massive way to be able to elevate and master your photography is by doing that. So Young Newell, YN564 and 560 TX2. I'll have links in the show notes. Yep. And somebody looking at a photo taken with a young Nuo is not going to be they able to no tell idea. whether it was, <laughs> yep, they won't tell it. They won't be able to tell if it was taken with a $70 flash or a $700 right. pro photo. Right. It looks the same. Yep. Um, yep. So mine is completely random, <laughs> and, but it's one of my favorite things that I travel with, especially this time of year when I'm starting to photograph around the coast or I'm getting ready to go to Iceland where I'm in cold weather. Uh, there's nothing more miserable than getting your hiking boots soaking wet and then having to put those on in the morning. So I've started traveling with a boot dryer. It's like this little, it's made by Dry Guy. I think that's the, the company name, but it's the Dry Guy portable boot dryer. 
and you can throw your soaking wet hiking boots on this. When you go to bed, you wake up with nice, warm, toasty, oh. bone dry boots. And it is so nice. And especially like when you're traveling in Iceland and you're going out into freezing cold conditions, I love to warm up my boots and warm up my socks on the inside of my boots. That way I'm putting on those nice, toasty uh, you know, foot apparel and then going out into the cold. It, it makes all the difference not having to put on wet boots. And I think most landscape photographers that are traveling and staying in hotels, they can all relate with like trying to rig up your boot with a, a hair dryer blowing into it and trying to dry them <laughs> out. Right. We've all done it and these things are so much better and they do a great job. So they're not too expensive. It's like I want to say it was like 35 bucks and easily fits in a suitcase. Best thing ever. The dry guy portable boot dryer. You're not packing those on a plane though, are you? Oh, dude. I, I oh, put I them in my check luggage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I put them in. They, I have one thing I've found though, is you want to make sure you run them through a, a power converter when you're in Europe because they don't really like 220 volts. <laughs> but okay. so I killed one, oh. but, uh, yeah, because they kind of fried, <laughs> but they they easily fit in your suitcase, like you know your your checked okay. luggage. So I, I throw them in there. It's probably folds down to maybe like twelve inches long, eight inches wide, three inches deep. Hmm. It's pretty small. Okay. It's nice, excellent, love it. All right, a couple of reminders here: masterphotographypodcast.com dot com. So we're going to find the show notes, which you're going to want. And you can go search like we have searchable show notes out there. So if you if you new to the podcast and you want to see what kind of things are out there, any subject you want to learn about, we probably have an episode about it. So go search the show notes. You can find it there. Masterphotographypodcast.com. Facebook group we mentioned already. Search for Master Photography Podcast and go join it. Lord Page is the keyword to get in there. <laughs> and and you can find my work. I'm J, at jsharmanphotos.com or the other podcast that I host photo taco podcast where i dive into like one topic for as long as it takes to go into it so you can check that out it's, it's another resource that you can go to and search on topics if you have questions about a lot of uh technical kinds of questions about photography uh, is kind of what I, I focus on mostly there all right nick where can people find you uh so people can find me at, on my website nickpagephotography.com they can find my podcast at landscape photography podcast podcast.com or just do a search for landscape photography podcast. Um, I've also got some videos coming up over on visual wilderness. So you can find that stuff there, but the easiest way is just to Google Nick page and you'll find me everywhere. (laughs) Very good. If they Google Lord page, are they going to find you? Probably not. (laughs) Not yet, (laughs) but they will. They will. We can only hope not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right, everybody. I'm so glad that you listened. And thanks thanks so much for, for listening to the show. And we will see you in another seven days. 